Chapter 32 The Road to Apocalypse Harbin and his men arrived, footsore but otherwise unharmed, at the edge of Titania's territory. The Elven Queen had been honorable in her declaration of protection. Harbin felt they had been watched every step of the way, but there were no incidents with the natives. Even the animals seemed to stay clear of them as they trudged the long miles back to the base through the oppressive humidity found beneath the forest canopy. It was clear when they arrived at the border of Her Majesty's territory. The forest ended as suddenly as a cliff. One side of the border was the lush, green, and humid world of Titania. On the other side was the land of Harbin's father and of the Argivians. It had been clear-cut, with every tree sawed down and hauled away. Smooth stumps marked the former forest like gravestones, and every bit of detritus and foliage had been stripped. Off in the distance, a huge mound of leaves and vines was smoking lazily, and beyond that, Harbin could see large machines ripping up the earth itself, searching for mineral wealth beneath. It looked more like the Argive he had grown up in than the Argot that the elves claimed as their own, Harbin realized. His people had taken the land and made it their own, for good or ill. Harbin stepped out into the open. The ground immediately became hard-packed, and the sun beat down on him like a hammer. He blinked in the brightness as each of his men, in turn, stepped into the sunlight. Behind them, from the forest, there was the war cry of the elvish voices. As one, the five men bolted across the wreckage of stumps, hoping to make the cover of the burning mounds before the elves caught up with them. In his lair in Koilos, Gix watched his entertainment through the eyes of a minion. She was one of the unfortunates among his brotherhood, one of those who failed the test of the machine. Her limbs had been replaced by servos and mechanisms, but the work was shoddy, quickly failed, and could not be replaced. She lay like a broken puppet at the foot of his throne, her useless prosthetics cast in all directions. She had cried about her fate for a long time, until Gix tired of that and sewed her lips shut. Still, she had her uses. Gix gripped her skull and tapped into her mind, watching the contest before them through the filter of her emotion and pain. Two of the Suchis were battling. Gix controlled them as he controlled the women before him, but did so at a distance. With practice over the long years in this strange land, and with the aid of a few devices of his own creation, he had become very good at commanding the hearts and souls of these machines. The Suchi stood two paces apart and flailed at each other. One bore a length of a chain, the other, a club made of the leg of another Suchi it had previously beaten in battle. Gix commanded the two automatons to beat each other to pieces, and, loyal to their god, they did so without complaint or comment. There was no poetry to this battle, for both machines stood their ground, neither retreating nor dodging. Instead, they relentlessly hammered away at each other, and the cavern walls echoed with the clang of metal on metal. As they thundered at each other, Gix observers watched, flinching with each rasping class of metal. Occasionally, a part of one of the suits she would fly off, and she would start suddenly, her skull firmly in the grip of the demon. Gix savored the feeling, the sudden rush of adrenaline through the priest's body. Without her senses, her reactions, the battle was merely a study of forces and impacts, of metal and resistance. But through human eyes, the two inhuman machines took on different appearances, and Gix relished the difference. The combatants were tireless, but in the end, the metal itself succumbed before the mindless will of the participants. The chain-wielding automaton wrapped the length of a chain around its opponent's neck and snapped its head from its pivots. The head of blue metal wires bounced off its supports toward the throne, and Gix's observers flinched at that as well. Meanwhile, the now-blind automaton attempted to hammer its opponent with its club. Its opponent let go of the chain and blocked the attack with an upraised arm, which bent under the force of the blow. Sparks began to issue from the joints of the former chain wielder from the impact, yet it moved smoothly under the blow and reached up with both hands, 
driving its fingers into the clubber's chest. The former chain wheeler pulled its hands apart and ripped its opponent's chest open. There was a shower of sparks as the leg wheeler collapsed in on itself, lacking anything at its center to hold it together. Again, the observer flinched and tried to turn away, but Gix held her head tightly and commanded her to keep her eyes open to drink in the eye-searing sparks of the device's destruction. In an instant, it was over. The chain wielder towered over the broken pile of scrap metal that had been its opponent. Gix felt the fear and revulsion in his observer and drank it like a fine wine. He let go of her, withdrawing the talents back into himself as she collapsed into a twitching pile at the foot of the throne. Gix rose and strode to the victorious automaton. Sparks rang from its joints, and the battering it had received had caved in part of its skull. Gix held out a finger and pushed against the victor's chest. The Suchi, unbalanced, tilted backward and smashed against the hard stone floor of the cavern. Its arms and legs separated under the blow, and its chest heaved in one last shower of sparks. Then, it was quiet. Unworthy, he said as an epitaph. Gix looked at the two fallen devices, so very much like the brothers they were. Mindless, easily manipulated, and relentless in their assault. And in the end, the victor would be vulnerable to Gix. Soon, said the demon, through lipless teeth. Very soon. Queen Titania was dying, thought Gwenna. The queen was dying, and the land was dying with her. A continual haze pervaded the surviving forest now, as more and more the land fell to the assaults of the brothers. From one side, Urza advanced. From the other, Mishra. And they left nothing in their wake. With each glade that fell, with each knot of trees that was lumbered and consumed by their machines, with each mountain that was strip mined, the land grew weaker. With the land, the queen grew weaker. And with the queen, the people. Gwenna could feel it, and so could the others. Their tie to the land, the soft and reassuring touch that they had felt in the core of their being, was gone. There was only emptiness. Emptiness and the smoke of the burning pyres. Titania had retreated to the most hidden part of her kingdom to plan the last assault, Gwenna had been told. But she had seen the queen before her retreat, and knew that Titania would not emerge from her sanctuary again. Her majesty was harried and haggard, and exhausted, for each blow against the land was a blow against her. Gwenna knew that Titania was lost to them, and with her, the wisdom of Gaia herself, and the goddess's protection. Gwenna would not stand aside and wait for news to come of Titania's surrender, nor for a final battle after their forces were so weakened they would be ineffective. They could stand against one of the invaders, but not both at once. She spoke with others among the elves and decided they must make their own assault. Then, the red-haired woman appeared to her group of plotters and gave them the opportunity to strike back. Now, she and a legion of comrades had gathered on the denuded shores of Argoth, an area where the despoiling army had passed but not remained. They waited on the shores for one set of enemies in order to strike out against the others. The others rounded the headlands in their strange ships of metal and wood, their internal engines shooting sparks into the night sky. Some of the elves muttered among themselves, and Gwenna heard the word, abominations. But she would ride into the belly of the abominations if it meant she could fight the invaders on their home ground. The larger ships remained in the deep waters of the bay, while smaller craft came and beached on the shores. The red-haired woman with the ornate staff led the way, followed by a group of warriors swathed in cloth. These later warriors were led by an old human with a narrow face. The red-haired woman bowed curtly and said in Gwenna's tongue, are you prepared for the voyage? Gwenna looked at her people. There was nervousness among them, but also anger. Anger at having their homes destroyed 
and their lands ripped asunder by the invaders. She nodded. Then you best board, and board quickly. As long as you are on shore, you are vulnerable, said the red-haired woman. Fortunately, the storms offshore have abated, so it should be safe sailing. The storms were abating because Titania was dying, thought Gwenna, but she said nothing. Instead, she merely nodded and gave the signal to her forces. They hefted their weapons and began climbing into the boats. Gwenna paused for a moment and listened as the red-haired woman and the old man made their goodbyes. Gwenna did not understand what they were saying and wondered for a moment if the two had been lovers and were now parting, possibly forever. The thought appealed to Gwenna as she climbed over the gunwales of the boat and took her first steps away from Argoth and into the heart of the enemy land. This is risky, said Hajar, as the elves in their armor of shellacked wood clambered into the boats. Everything is risky, said Ashot. But we need to strike at Urza's boatyards before he can resupply further. We do not have the manpower, but these forest children are mad enough at him to do the job for us. You should come along, said Hajar. Ashot shook her head. Misha will accept your departure, I think. But if I leave, he will come after me. He will be angry, said the old Falaji. He will be delighted, said Ashad. When you succeed. I'll bring the boats back, said Hajar. Ashnot shook her head again. Why, so they may be used to bring supplies from Zigon? There is nothing left there. It's all been melted down and chopped down and converted and sent here. We are at the end of things, Hajar. It is now or never. Hajar was silent for a moment, then said stiffly, I have missed your way of thinking. The Brotherhood of Geeks is not nearly as comforting. Ashad said, I will tell Misha when he finds out this was my idea, but that you insisted on leading the raid so things would work out. Hajar chewed over the idea, then made us a small smile. It has been an honor working with you. You think like a man, he said. Ashnot's fingers tightened around her staff, but she said, Thank you, Hajar. I accept that as the compliment you mean it to be. The boats were loaded, and Hajar was gone, rowing out to the larger craft. Ashnot watched the sparkling lights of the craft until they sailed again around the headland and were lost. Then, she began a long walk back to camp, wondering if Misha would even notice that Hajar and the ships were gone. He's sending me home, snarled Harbin, sitting down in the camp chair across the tent from Tanos. Tanos looked up from his work, but said nothing. He says I am needed more back in Penrigan, continued the younger man. Tanos tightened the nut on the large construct he was working on and said, He's right. Of course he's right, snapped Harbin. He's always right. That's what being Lord Protector is all about, isn't it? Being right. Tanos stood up and regarded his handiwork. This looks about ready. What do you think? Harbin looked at the object. It looked like a large crate, seven feet in length and three feet in height and depth. It was unremarkable, save that it was made of metal and had a great heavy lid. Looks like a coffin, said the younger man. Taunus took a step back, looked at the construct, and smiled. Yes, I suppose it does. All the better, I guess. And what does it do? said Harbin, putting his irritation with his father aside. When I was Misra's guest, they kept me in a cell, forgotten by the rest of the world, said Tanos. As he spoke, he flexed his right hand, as if to shake out an ancient pain. I've been thinking about it, and came up with this. 
it functions with some of the same mechanisms that power the old amulets of Krug, along with Eshnaut's staff from Zigon. Uh-huh, said Harbin. And what does it do? It will keep a body within a stasis, effectively asleep for a long time as the power stones operate within it, or until the box is open. Thanos looked at Harbin. You see, I have been thinking about what your father will do with his brother once he defeats him. I don't think he could bring himself to kill him, but neither could he suffer him to live. This, Thanos patted the top of the lid, is the third option. Harbin smiled, and it was a warm smile. Uncle Thanos, you are inventing answers to questions no one even posed yet. You assume we're going to defeat Mishra, or take him alive if we do. Of course we are going to win, said Thanos. We did not come this far to give up. I wonder, said Harbin. Thanos blinked at the younger man. You have doubts? Harbin shook his head. Not I, but in talking with father, he shook his head again. He seems very, not despondent, but weary and tired. Resigned, said Thanos. He has had the long road. And it will finally end soon. I think he knows it. It will end one way or the other. And when it does end, said Harbin, I want to be here one way or the other. Tano shook his head. The elves have gotten their hands on boats and are marauding their way up the coast. We need a good leader to rally the garrison units against them. You are that leader. Harbin said nothing. You wanted the opportunity to lead, said Tano. And the price of leadership is that you have to keep leading, even if you would rather be somewhere else. Harbin slowly nodded. You and father have already talked about this, correct? Tano shrugged. He has sought my advice regarding your well-being. Harbin looked up at the older, taller man and said, Will you look after him? Father, I mean. After his well-being? I always do, the master scholar replied. When we parted, he said something that bothered me. He said, Tell your mother to remember me as I try to be, not as I was. He doesn't think he's going to live through this. Harbin looked at the ground, and Tano said, I'll look after him. I've been doing it for years, in one way or the other. Harbin sighed. I told him I was wrong, too. Wrong about wanting to stay at the side? Asked Tano. Harbin shook his head. A long time ago, he asked me what I thought about the Union's work, about magic. I told him I doubted that it even existed. But now, after seeing what the elves and their queen, and what they could do without any devices at all, I'm unsure. I feel responsible for convincing them that magic did not exist. I don't think that anyone ever convinced Urza of anything he did not believe in himself, said Thanos. Just remember that there's always something that you don't know that you can afford to learn. Is that why you're still with father after all these years? Asked Harbin. Probably, said Thanos. But I have learned much from a lot of people. I guess I assumed that I never knew it all to start with. It was more willing to listen to others. Harbin smiled at Thanos' words. The older man went to the far side of the tent and rummaged around, finally pulling out a short wand. The device was about the length of Harbin's forearm and had a thick bulbous tip like an orange. Here, he said. A going away present. Harbin looked at the device. What is it? Another machine I developed some time back. 
It masked the user from the sensory devices of the artifact creatures. This was a prototype. It doesn't seem to work on the larger beings, but it will help if there are any transmogrants around. Harvin smiled. Still trying to protect me, Uncle Thanos? No. You keep the wand. You probably need it more than I do where I'm going. So you will be going, said Thanos. Harbin held out his hands in mock surrender. Of course. The younger man gave a smile. But once these elven marauders are taken care of, I will be back. Count on that. Of that, I have no doubt, said Thanos. After all, you are your father's son. Of course I am, said Harbin, a tired smile spreading across his face. Who else would I be? Misha did not question Hajar's absence, nor ask about the missing ships, nor even Ashant herself. Instead, he pushed deeper and deeper into the heartland of the island. Anything that could not be fed immediately into the foundries was killed and burned, and charnel pits dotted the countryside. The air hung heavy with the smoke of what once had been Argot's forest. Misha's forces moved with the smooth and relentless efficiency of a machine, mowing down everything in their path. Finally, Ashan was summoned once more into Misha's presence. The priest of Gix hung over his shoulder as she entered, like vultures waiting for the lion to make a fresh kill. You've been talking to the natives of the island, said Misha, without waiting for her to bow and scrape. Ashan looked at the leering priest and said, Of course, I've been endeavoring to get them to attack Ursa's forces as opposed to our own. They have a company of druidical priests that... Misha interrupted, as if she had said nothing after, of course. Do you believe they can defeat my brother's forces? Ashan looked at Misha, but his brows were in shadow, and she could not see his eyes. No, she said simply. I don't think they could. But they could weaken him, said Misha. Yes, said Ashad. What is this about? Misha's head snapped up, and Ashad saw the fire in the man's eyes. Urza's main position is seven days away. There's a force of elves heading toward it, which is two days away from arriving. If the elves reach my brother first, they may weaken him sufficiently, allowing me to crush him completely. Your thoughts? Urza has many machines on his side, began Ashad, but stopped as Mishra's scowl grew deeper. Yes, if the elves attack Urza first, then he will be weakened, but we would win any direct battle with the natives. Thank you, said Mishra, turning away. You may go. Me lord, said Ashad. If there is to be a battle, we need to draw up the plan of assault. One has already been drawn up, said Mishra and the priest gave another leering smile. Ashan knew who had done the advising in this matter. We will gather our forces and move in behind the elves, ready to attack after they do. You may go. Ashan looked at the priest, then bowed low to Misha and left his headquarters, muttering as she did so. That evening, there was a celebration among the Brotherhood of Gix. There was a bonfire in their camp and much chanting and singing. Ashan considered trying to reach Misha, but then decided against it. The Gixons had probably left at least one of their number behind to watch over the artifice Kadir. The red-haired woman sat on her bunk, holding the old pack that still contained the Golgothian Silex. She was to have no role in the battle, it seemed, and no role in whatever followed it. She thought for a moment and looked into the darkness, the only sound, the cheers of the priest of Gix. Asha would have a role, whether Misha wanted it or not. She pulled some parchment from her pack, along with the stylus, and began composing a letter to an old friend. The elves never stood a chance, thought Tana sadly, 
all the valor and bravery and devotion in the world did not matter when you were armed with wooden armor and bone weapons facing remorseless metal and unthinking stone. They came in waves. Elves, sprites, centaurs, and tree folk. Some were riding great wildcats, and others were commanding herds of slugs that wrapped around the legs of an artifact and sucked its energy dry. The sky above rumbled and lanced down bolts of electrical fury, and the ground replied in the thunder of feet moving across the hardback surface of the ravaged earth, and towering above it all was a titanic figure, a living embodiment of the torn force of Argoth. It was huge and roughly humanoid, but the mane of its hair was trees, and the body was made of living wood and twined upon itself to form massive muscles. It borne a stone sword that seemed to be forged from the heart of the mountain itself. Tanos remembered what Harbin had said about the elven magics, and knew that the elves had somehow animated the power of the force and bent it to their will. Urza's forces were quickly arrayed in defense. Avengers, Sentinels, Tetravi and Triskelions, insect-headed mechanical soldiers armed with weapons of new steel and statues crafted out of primal clay. Word was sent down the line of reinforcements as the first wave struck the Argivian lines. The elves were slaughtered. For every mechanical device that fell, 30 elves perished. For every ornithopter that was brought down, there were 50 pixies. The tree folk screamed as they went up in flames, one after another, and still, the elves came on. Taunus was at the center of the line and felt to begin to waver, then to give under the relentless assault. Taunus called for more support, but the auxiliary units were already committed to the flanks. If the center did not hold, then the army would collapse in on itself. The sky rumbled again, and the ground responded with a deeper cry, and Taunus knew the reinforcements had arrived. Urza had his own titan, crafted in the mountains of Sardia, before the dwarves betrayed them. It was a hulking giant of stone and metal that towered over everything in its path. A single stride was a hundred feet, and crows and carrion birds had nested in its head. Urza had brought it to Argoth on a great barge, and it had acted as a lighthouse to guide the ships to safe harbor past the storms. Now, it met the only other being on the island that was its equal. The tree monster bellowed a challenge, and while the Colossus was silent, it turned and bore down on its opponent, the two locked in combat that dwarfed the lesser beings around them. The center of both lines broke to give the Titans room to brawl, and those elves and devices that were too slow to get out of the way were smashed into the earth. The stone sword arced through the air and bit deeply into the Colossus' side. The great animate statue shuddered, and plates of metal cascaded from its joints like scales shed from a snake. The forest titan reared back for another assault, but the Colossus was too fast for it. It grabbed the attacker's arm as it descended and smoothly and effortlessly twisted it from its socket. There was the sound of an entire jungle screaming as the forest beast's arm was ripped loose and sent spinning across the shallow valley. The forest titan was not to be denied, for as it lost one arm, it swung heavily with the other, a massive hand made of wood and rock. This smashed against the side of the Colossus' head, and most of the giant's face became a cloud of dust. The Colossus did not need its head to think or react. It grappled the front of the forest titan with one hand. With the other, it reared back and slammed a fist into the creature's chest like a battering ram assaulting an enemy gate. The forest thing's body exploded in a rain of splinters that cut down troops within a hundred yards of the brawl. Its legs thundered to the ground in two separate directions, and its head rolled backward and plummeted, screaming as it fell. That broke the elves' morale completely. Their salt fell apart with their gigantic leader, and they fled from the battle, dropping their weapons as they ran. Those machines that could pursue did so, cutting down the forest dwellers with neither remorse nor pity. Yet the forest titan has succeeded, for the Colossus could not recover from its attack. The force of the blow ripped the stone statue's own arm from its moorings 
and it cascaded to the ground with the sound of an avalanche. Bolts of lightning shot from the metal-plated joints as the great statue slowly dropped to its knees, then sprawled forward, face down, across a small stream that now ran red with blood and black with oil. The valley shook as it struck the earth. Tonos watched the route and felt sadness. It was not that elves thought they were forced to fight over a land they could not hold. They were merely in the wrong place at the wrong time. Had their land remained secret, they would have been spared all this. But once revealed, they were cast in the maelstrom of war with the rest of them. He shook his head as the last group of elves and centaurs tried to rally on a mound of fallen Triskelions, only to be overrun by soldiers. All that was left after that was the cleanup. The bodies were collected and burned, and the artifacts were checked and repaired. The Colossus was beyond help, but plates from its hide could be stripped and used for other creatures. Urza arrived in the evening with additional reinforcements, along with more artificers and mechanics, to help with repairs. Though the elven force was almost entirely wiped out, it had taken a heavy toll on the Argivians. Then the scout arrived with bad news. Misha's forces had been spotted five days' march to the west and was making for their position. Tanos argued that they should pull back, at least to the safety of the coastal forts. But Urza would hear nothing of it. Strip the forts within four days' march of here, he said. We will fight here. We are battered and tired, noted Tanos. Our machines are battered, but they cannot be tired, said Urza. What non-combat living beings we have, we can evacuate in time. Let this battle be a time and place of our choosing. Tanos looked at Urza and saw that Harbin had been right. Urza seemed resigned to battling his brother, regardless of the outcome. It would all end here, one way or another. The scout also brought a message for Tanos. He did not say where he got it, but Tanos knew who it was from the moment he saw the handwriting. Something important? asked Urza. Has Harbin had success against the raiders? Message from an old friend, Tanos said, scowling. Urza was already pouring over the maps of the surrounding terrain and only nodded. Tanos pocketed the message and Urza said nothing more on the matter. Tanos thought of the date and said, If they take five days to get here and attack by the six, it will be the last day of the year. Perhaps we could begin the new year with the world at peace when we win. The last day, said Urza softly. And on the last day, we're equal. Pardon? said Tanos. Urza shook his head. Just an old thought. You get to an advanced age, and that's all you have anymore. Old thoughts and regrets. In Koilos, the demon Gix heard the chants of his priests and Argoth and knew it was time to go to them. All the pieces were in place. The one brother was wounded, and his sibling was bearing down on him. The survivor would be battered down beyond belief and in no shape to defend himself. Neither was prepared for the surprise the demon had prepared for them. Gix smiled as a small point of light appeared near his throne. It grew until it formed into a disc, like a reflecting pool that had been turned on its side. There was the smell of smoke and the distant sound of crashing gears. He looked at his domain within the cavern at the scattered parts of the demolished suit cheat. He would soon return in triumph. He looked at his observer, the poor priestess, whose mechanical limbs had rejected her. She implored him with her eyes, for she no longer could speak. The disc was almost fully formed, and Gix did not have much time. He walked over to her and cradled her head in his hands. Talons pierced the flesh of her scalp and drove through the bone into the brain itself. Gix opened every synapsis in the woman's mind and let the holy fire fill her as every part of her brain fired at once. She jerked and spasmed in his hands and then was still. He let go of her and she slumped to the floor, 
a puppet with its strings cut. Gix noticed that there was a smile on her sewn whips, and he smiled in return as he stepped through the gate and into the final battle between the brothers. <laughs>